Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 34 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. Woodwind player Brett Pimentel is comfortable in a wide variety of musical settings. He is at home with the classical solo repertoire of the flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and saxophone, as well as chamber music, symphonic, jazz, rock, and pop. In addition to the major modern woodwind instruments, he is also skilled at a variety of world woodwinds and the Akai electronic wind instrument. Brett teaches applied oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and saxophone at Delta State University, as well as chamber music, woodwind methods, and jazz courses. In 2014, he won the Humanities Teacher Award from the Mississippi Humanities Council. Brett's website, brettpimentel.com, is a go-to resource for woodwind players and teachers who visit for thoughtful blog posts and other resources and tools, including the Woodwind Doubling in Musicals list and the Fingering Diagram Builder. Brett's writing has also been published in the Instrumentalist magazine and in the Clarinet, for which he currently co-writes the Clarinet Cash column. He is a frequent presenter and performer at conferences of the National Flute Association, International Double Reed Society, International Clarinet Association, and North American Saxophone Alliance. Brett received the Doctor of Musical Arts degree from the University of Georgia with an emphasis in multiple woodwinds performance. His master's degree, also in multiple woodwinds, is from Indiana University, and his bachelor's degree in saxophone performance is from Brigham Young University. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss Brett's blog and website, his contribution to the Clarinet magazine as a co-writer of the Clarinet Cash column, his doubling career, and his work as a professor at Delta State University. Students, make sure to stick around all the way to the end, where Dr. Pimentel shares some valuable audition tips. The giveaway for this episode is a gold-plated Diderio H. ligature with cap. To make sure you're eligible to win items mentioned on the podcast, including an upcoming giveaway for a Bakun Alpha clarinet, make sure to sign up for our emailing list at www.clarinet.com. You'll also receive content updates, special offers, coupons, and more right to your inbox. Today's episode was brought to you by Diderio Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit D'Addario.com slash woodwinds. So I'm here today with Brett Pimentel. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's first talk about your popular website and blog, which can be found at brettpimentel.com. It looks like you've been actively posting here since way, way back in 2001. Is that accurate? Well, I've been actively blogging since about 2008. Uh, There are some older things that I I posted retroactively. Those were a lot of them were papers I wrote in school and stuff like that. Uh, Oh, okay. I thought that the actual domain had been active at those points since then, but that's still pretty impressive. So what what got you started with this sort of uh, contributing to the community in this way and what keeps you going? I had a a website back as early as uh, 2000. I was on GeoCities for those that are old enough to to remember the, the bad old days. Um, but, uh, about 2008 or so I was working on my doctoral, uh, degree and my, my thought at the time, I'm not sure that I was right about this, but my thought at the time was if I, um, put some stuff out there, uh, about myself, maybe that would help me get a university, uh, teaching job. Uh, I, I'm not sure that really contributed, but it, it did bring some other, uh, benefits, some of which I didn't really, uh, really expect. 
So the uh, GeoCities, I actually remember that too, <laughs> back in those days. Um, so WordPress, though, is quite a step up from that. And your website is really minimalist, very gorgeous uh, design, I think. But uh, what, what are you hoping to accomplish with the posts that you make on there? Who's the target market? Well, really, I'm writing for myself. Uh, so I, I write posts uh, sometimes that are about kind of technical woodwind-related stuff. Uh, sometimes it's uh, more about teaching. Sometimes it's kind of general music things. Um, so basically, I'm writing the, the kind of articles I'm interested in reading. Uh, I have a few, you know, I, I have some faithful readers who I think are reading everything that I write, but I get a lot of uh, traffic through Google of people looking for certain things and finding it uh, somewhere buried on my site. Yeah, the Google traffic is quite interesting because no one, nowadays, anyone can just search something and, and find you, whether they know you or not, which is, we didn't have that back in the day of GeoCities, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that works out well because, you know, if I write something about, you know, clarinet embouchure, and then several years go by, you, you might not find it very easily if you just visit the site. But if you're Googling for it, then you can find anything. So some of the content on there is like strictly professional, really advanced stuff. And other stuff is more lighthearted, kind of like uh, that practice diet routine or something with the donut you posted the other day. And there's also that fun Pokemon Go style go practice sign. Um, why do you think sort of having a sense of humor mixed in is important on the on a website like that? <laughs> well, uh, again, it's <laughs> It's mostly for my own entertainment. Uh, you know, when I do something that has a little bit of a humorous slant to it, sometimes that brings in a uh, little additional traffic, which is fun. Or, or um, you know, when I when I post something like that, um, what what I really would like to happen is for for that to attract readers who are going to click through and look at my more serious posts and hopefully come away with some useful information. Yeah, well, I think it worked because I mean, even the little Pokemon Go thing. Where, where did that come from, by the way? How'd you think of that? Oh, I don't I don't know. It just popped into my head one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just printed one off to hang up in my studio, actually. I think it's going to be quite a hit. Um, but I think it does lead to click-through traffic, and I bet that people do end up reading some of the different posts. Let's say that we just clicked on the Pokemon Go thing. We get to your website. Um, where's the top three places you'd hope we'd go? Like, I, We can't talk about every post that you've made, obviously, but sort of just like a taster. Yeah, well, I, I, I write blog posts about uh, all of the woodwinds, uh, including sometimes world instruments or electronic wind controllers, things like that. So, you know, if you are coming um, and you're interested in a specific instrument, then I hope that you'll find um, uh, information that is, that is useful to you, whether as a player or as a teacher or both. So that, that would be one thing. Um, there are a few other uh, resources here that I think are, are um, useful and are especially popular. I have the, the fingering diagram builder, which you can use to, to make uh, fingering charts in a sort of point and click way. Uh, so that's been very popular and it seems to be useful to a lot of people. Uh, I also have, I have a lot of woodwind doublers that visit my site and uh, I have a, a, a list of woodwind doubling requirements for uh, Broadway musicals or Broadway style musicals. Uh, that's over a thousand shows. And I get a, a surprising amount of traffic to that people coming to visit and see, you know, for this show, what woodwind doubles do I need if I if I get the gig? What are your maybe top three posts then of all time as far as traffic goes? Oh, let's see. There's one that I, I wrote originally as a paper in graduate school uh, about uh, the materials that uh, woodwind instruments are made out of and the effect that it does or doesn't have on the sound of the instrument. Oh, wow. 
Uh, and that is uh, not based on my own research. It's based on uh, reading uh, of acoustical journal articles and so forth. And it turns out there's there's a hundred years of research uh, dealing with this. I get a lot of traffic about that, especially when there's an argument going on on some internet message board and somebody posts that link. <laughs> Argument. I get a ton of traffic and a lot of, uh, not a lot. I get some uh, angry comments about the conclusions that I come to. On that. Oh, really? Interesting. So what are those conclusions like? Is it a bit of a placebo effect, you think? or? Well, I, I tend to think so. Uh, if, if the materials make a difference, it seems to be very small, uh, if at all. But I, I, in the article, I talk a little bit about some of the problems of trying to, to prove that scientifically. It's, it's a difficult thing to nail down. Mm-hmm. So, as we know, you know, two different clarinets play differently from each other, even if they're the same brand, same model, made from the same materials. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to, to isolate the variables. Yeah, it's very interesting because back, oh, I can't remember the years now, but the, the metal clarinets I heard were actually quite popular, even with orchestral players for a lot of years. And then they really fell out of favor um, now to the obviously the wooden ones have always been popular. But now we have, you know, hard rubber and other materials that are allegedly better than plastic, but it's, it is hard to say because people have their own preferences and who knows what else affects it, right? Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to, to in a blind test, to tell the difference between a metal clarinet and a wooden clarinet. You, you would be able to tell, I think, that they're different clarinets, but I'm not sure you could listen to it and say, oh, that one's metal. Now, there are people that will get angry comments about this. There'll be people that'll write in and say, well, I can tell the difference. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's true. It's funny how that happens. Um, but it, saxophones, for example, have always been made out of metal and along with brass instruments, and they, they seem to have no, no problem that way. So, yeah, let's not have too many angry comments. But <laughs> <laughs> So what's the second post then? So that's the maybe one of the most popular ones. What else? One of the most popular ones. Uh, let's see. I get a lot of Google traffic on one that I wrote about um, why tune to the oboe in an orchestra. Oh, yeah. I actually read that one. Yeah. That one gets a lot of Google traffic. It seems to be a popular question that people are asking. So in a nutshell, what's the answer? Well, it seems to, to mostly just be tradition. Um, and I, I didn't uh, uh, come to any real solid conclusions in that article other than there, there are a lot of theories out there that don't make sense to me. And people say, oh, the, the oboe, well, that's the one that, that can't be tuned, so everybody else has to tune to that, which doesn't make sense in the context of a professional orchestra. Like if the oboist comes in playing 20 cents sharp, like the entire orchestra is going to tune up to that. Yeah. It's not going not gonna to happen. Uh, and the oboe can be tuned. It, you know, it doesn't have a tuning mechanism like the clarinet does where you can pull out the barrel, but... You know, any oboist worth their salt has a case full of reeds that play at different pitch levels and will make other adjustments for it. Yeah. Can't you adjust with your face as per any other wind instrument as well? Uh, you can. Uh, like with any other woodwind, you will get uh, pretty tired pretty quick if that's how you're doing it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Interesting. Make little adjustments on the fly, then you can. So what about a third post then? What's the, what's the third one we could kind of okay. highlight here? Um, I, I wrote a, a post at one point about um, why music education majors in college uh, really need applied study, why they need to take lessons on their instrument, um, which, you know, I don't know that there are a lot of people out there that really disagree with me about that. Uh, but, um, you know, something that I was thinking about because my students are mostly music education majors and, and mostly are enthusiastic about playing music. But every so often I get one who who feels like they shouldn't have to, to learn to play to a high standard. So I wrote a post about that. 
about why it's so important. Um, I'm going to make sure to link to these three in the show notes there. Um, and that, that one actually is interesting to me as well, because it's funny when I was in, 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 in university, my undergrad, I noticed that that actually was happening is that by third year, a lot of the ed majors no longer were required to take lessons, but mm-hmm. a lot of the best players that I knew were ed majors and were continuing their lessons regardless of that. Um, it's, why do you think that happens? Why, why is that accepted? Uh, why is it accepted that, that music education majors can, can take fewer credits of lessons? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, I, I can't think of a good reason why that should be acceptable. Um, I, I do know that um, in our music education degrees here, and I think this varies state to state depending on state um, certification requirements for teachers. Mm-hmm. But I know here the music education degree is very intense. Uh, you know, they, the music education majors have to do almost everything that the, the performance majors do. Plus, they have to take all of these education classes. They have to do a teaching internship or student teaching experience. And so they're really, they're really overwhelmed with the, the number of classes and things that they have to take. So that's the best guess I can make is that, you know, there's just too many things and something has to go. Um, I think that's a mistake to cut the, the applied study. It's funny though, too, because I feel that in the same sort of breath, a lot of performance majors lack, um, some of the understanding of other instruments that would come from here. We call it, uh, what do we call it? Like, uh, like a brass tech sort of class where woodwind players have to learn about brass instruments. And that's what the ed majors have to take. Um, and also pedagogically, sometimes they're a little bit lacking from that sort of training. So what do you, what would you say to performance majors who want to expand their educational sort of understanding as well? Yeah, I, I feel like a, a performance curriculum really needs to have uh, a pedagogy component to it. And a lot of universities do have, you know, a pedagogy class. Uh, you know, I think it would be nice if that was more than one semester. Uh, again, you run into problems of you add something and what are you going to cut to make room for it? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, those that that are that see themselves going into performance, you know, almost nobody almost nobody in the world makes their living just from performing. Uh, you know, many, many, many of the great performers are supplementing their income with teaching. And I think you have to be prepared to do that, you know, wh- whether it is, uh, you know, in a university setting or whether it's just teaching lessons out of your home or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, one of the best things that I did in college was uh, to to scrounge up some jobs uh, teaching lessons. Uh, so I was teaching out of a music store. I was teaching at this little uh, private music school. And um, that was a wonderful experience. Um, and that's experience that I put to use every day now as a university um, woodwinds uh, professor. But uh, that was a, a, a kind of low stakes situation where I could make some mistakes in my teaching and try some things and see what worked. And uh, and I had a fallback that I had great teachers that I could go talk to and say, I'm having this problem with a student. And what do you suggest? And, uh, you know, I I didn't really have a strong curriculum for that in the three college degrees that I did. But uh, doing that on the side um, was a became an important aspect of my education plus um, earned me a little rent money. Absolutely. So yeah, in a nutshell, I think then ed majors, I think you're sort of advocating they try and pursue a high level on their instrument. And is there another post that talks about performance majors with pedagogy as well? Or is that maybe 
one coming uh, up? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that I have a post about that, but that's an interesting idea. Maybe I'll have to get to work on that one. Yeah, no, I think this is some really great stuff. And by the way, to listeners, there's just there must be dozens, if not hundreds of posts on your website now of similar hundreds. sort of quality. Is it hundreds? How many approximately? Oh, it must be somewhere in the ballpark of 500. Wow. So all articles that are, um, you know, they're, they're well thought out. They're good discussion points. And, you know, with lots of stuff, you don't necessarily have to agree <laughs> to, to, read the, to read the facts and take in, or even not uh, facts, maybe just new information or different information. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out. You seem like Absolutely. a re- and, I, and I have a, a comments section too. So if you read something and you disagree with it and want to engage in some conversation, then I'm I'm up for that. I might be going on a, out on a limb here, but you seem like a realist. <laughs> <laughs> would you, very evidence based, kind of. Uh, would you say so? Well, y- yes, I try to be. Um, my feeling is that there's a lot of woodwind teaching that is vague. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I. I did a project over the summer where I was rereading a lot of pedagogical books on woodwind playing and, um, and I was just kind of disappointed by what I found. You know, there, there's so many really important concepts, some that I talk about a lot on my blog, like voicing or like breath support that kind of get mentioned in passing and not really taught in a very clear way. So I get students all the time that they know they're supposed to do breath support because their school band directors or whatever have been yelling at them about it. And I say, okay, tell me about breath support. How do you do breath support? And they don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, No wonder their band directors have been frustrated. (laughs) Um, So I, I, I try really hard to be as clear and precise as I can and... And lately, I've also been trying to make an effort to be less wordy, you know, to, to be able to define something like breath support and to put it in a nice, clear, simple way that someone can grasp and take with them and use. Uh, yeah, so I, I, try, I try to, you know, to, to avoid some of the problems where, where people talk about um, you know, they, they, they're trying to teach a pedagogical concept, but they're, they're talking about anatomical things that are not uh, – grounded in reality or they're talking about acoustical things that don't match with the way uh, acoustics work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think there's a there's a lot of room there for woodwind teachers, probably not just woodwind, but certainly woodwind teachers to um, to embrace uh, a more scientific approach. Yeah, you actually remind me of uh, episode four. I talked to a guy named Daryl Caswell, who's an engineer, and he teamed up. He's also a, a horn player, but he teamed up with an oboist to design a better reed knife. And one of the things that he thinks led him to the, the best knife possible was that he didn't know anything and, and didn't want to know anything about the mythology of making reeds. He just mm-hmm. wanted to know, how can I make a damn sharp knife and how can it work the best? <laughs> and, Absolutely. uh, he left it at I, that. I have one of those knives. It's great. Oh really? Oh, I should let him know that. That's great. Yeah. Landwell, right? Uh, Landwell knives. Yep. Fantastic. So I wanted to talk about the tools on your site. You've got one called the reed cast, which is really a, it's a great name. Obviously it's a forecast yeah. for your reeds. That's right. It, that, that's one that I released as an April fool's joke. Uh, and it was funny cause I went in there this morning and I laughed out loud cause it said, Unpropiti- uh, how do you say that word? Unpropitious? Oh, un- unpropitious, I think. Unpro- yeah. yeah, I just <laughs> laughed. So it, it's funny because it had a little graphic of a bomb next to my read, and that's pretty much exactly what it's like here. Um, yeah. So I know that the, one's... The, yeah, the, re- the real thing that it does is it gives you a weather report and elevation and maybe some other information that, that would be relevant to uh, 
read performance. Uh, but yeah, then it always just gives you a, a terrible forecast of blue <laughs> doom about how your reads are going to perform that day. So that one is a joke, but it's actually really funny because it actually does, even though it's a joke, it provides useful information um, that you can actually use to kind of think about your reads and how they should be kept. And I think it's kind of a little bit of a, I don't know, it's uh, well, why did you come up with it? Well, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, well, my original idea was to try and do one for real. Um, I, I was doing a little bit of traveling at the time, going to places at different elevations and trying to figure out, um, you know, how this is going to affect my reads, how I can make sure my reads are at their best. And uh, so I was going to look into existing research about maybe elevation, maybe about uh, climate, about humidity, so forth, see, see what, uh, what conclusions I could draw about that and looked into it. And there just wasn't enough uh, research to, to come up with anything solid, but I, I do try and do an April fool's, uh, joke every year on the, on the blog. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll do that and put together kind of a fake, uh, one of those that just every day tells you that your reads are going to be awful. <laughs> uh, so but I did, I did end up actually incorporating the, the weather, uh, forecast information. Yeah. It's really funny. So you have a, a couple more things. Um, the, the fingering diagram builder is just really, really cool and really brilliant. I think it works for any wind instrument, woodwind instrument. Is that how it's? Yeah, well, certainly all of the major ones and a number of minor ones. Um, and, uh, you know, if, you, if you're into this, you can also do um, like brass valved instrument uh, fingerings or even uh, like piano chords. Um, but yeah, the, the original, uh, idea, this was scratching my own itch. I was teaching a, a woodwind methods class. I think you referred to it a moment ago as like a woodwind tech class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was teaching that class and, uh, um, I was a graduate student at the time. Someone else selected the textbook and, and it had this terrible, terrible bassoon fingering chart in it that was almost illegible and full of mistakes. And, um, and I had made fingering charts before where I'd kind of painstakingly drawn these little diagrams and then filled in the. Um, you know, the fingerings for them. I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, and so that's where the idea kind of hatched that maybe I could, could create a web tool for it. Uh, and it turned out at the time I did not have the web skills, did not have the programming skills to make it happen. I made several attempts over several years uh, and stalled out on all of them uh, until it finally, finally came together. So you got a few other things on here too. There's, I'm, I'm going to be installing your little WordPress plugin for displaying accidentals properly on on websites. You designed mm-hmm. that code yourself or that plugin? I, I did. Yeah. That's, that's a pet peeve of mine when people use like a lowercase B for a flat or a, uh, a pound sign for a, for a sharp. So I, I wanted an easy way to do it on my own. Blog. Yeah. I'm going to be adding that because that's been, it's a pet peeve of mine, but I didn't know there was a solution. So that's a really great idea. Um, also you've got the random note picker. Um, yes. what, what is this intended to be used for? That was also um, something that I wanted. Uh, I have students come in and I quiz them on their scales. So I wanted a, a good random way to to uh, select scales for them to play. Absolutely. Uh, so I hear, I, I hear from people using it for all kinds of different things. It was used for some kind of online contest recently where you use that to generate a chord progression and then write a song based on it. And of course, from a web design perspective, these sort of tools are great because it keeps people coming back, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I earn a very small amount of income from my website through some advertising and so forth, but 
um, you know, this, this really is a labor of love. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a full-time job that pays the bills. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the web, the website, really what I want out of that is for it to be useful to people. And it puts me in touch with people that I never would, would have heard from. That's been, been the, been the most surprising and wonderful thing about it is that I hear from especially woodwind players, uh, all over the world that write in just to say hello, or they have questions or, um, yeah, so that's been really fun. It is amazing. I find the same thing with with clarinet. It's just it's connected the whole community for me. I, I'm reaching all kinds of people all over the world I never would have even heard of before. So it's so cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, check that out, everybody. There's he's got a lot of great stuff there. You can uh, check your read forecast just for fun. You can uh, check out the fingering diagram. He's got all kinds of links and a blog roll, and there's all sorts of stuff on here. And oh, of course, that random note picker thing. I'm actually going to try that with a few students and I've been looking for something like that. One more thought about this before we move on, but have you ever thought about doing up an iPhone app with some of these little tools in it? Uh, I get that suggestion a lot. Um, I am not a, not an Apple user myself, uh, nothing against it, just not, not, not what I use. And to, to do that kind of stuff, it requires a lot of investment. It seems like you have to actually buy a Macintosh computer to, to create an app and you have to you know, pay fees and everything to, to have, have your app submitted. So it's not really on the, on the horizon at this point. Um, if I was going to do an app, it might be an Android app first, since that's what I use and it's a lot cheaper to, to, um, develop an app that way. Um, but really, you know, I try to make everything so that it is usable in a mobile browser. So even something as complicated as a fingering diagram builder, you can use on your, on your phone just by navigating it to navigating to it in your browser. Yeah, sorry, I meant like any sort of, uh, what would you call that, portable phone app? <laughs> Android or iPhone, I guess, Apple. But um, yeah, the startup costs are tough with that. I don't know how people get going with it. But So let's move on to your work uh, with the International Clarinet Association. You're a co-author of the Clarinet Cash article that comes out in the Clarinet magazine. Um, I was yes. so happy that you guys featured Clarinet last month. Thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. What kinds of things um, are you looking to accomplish with this article and and what does it offer the clarinet community in the digital age? Mm-hmm. Well, I am relatively new to it. It was uh, originally written by uh, Rachel Yoder, who now is the editor of the entire journal, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. Kelly Lig- Kelly Lignitz Hahn. And you know, honestly, I'm not sure I'm saying that name right. She and I have never met in person. We do all of this online, <laughs> uh, but um, the the two of them were writing it, and it uh, essentially has been kind of roundups of clarinet related web links. And so that goes in the print journal and it also goes online. And that's probably the more convenient version because you can click through to, to things. Um, so we, the, the effort there has been to, to highlight uh, online content related to the clarinet. Uh, in the future, we are, we are looking at and in fact just finished writing um, the first in a series of articles about creating your own web presence. Uh, so we think that that hopefully will be useful to clarinetists out there who, um, who are interested in doing that and maybe aren't sure where to start or are worried that it will be too technical or, or something like that. That's a great idea. So basically help in what your website should display and how to get it there. Yeah. What kinds of tools you might use, you know, do, do you need to be very tech savvy? You know, does it cost money or trying trying to answer those kinds of questions? It is amazing how important a web presence seems to be this day and age. Yeah. It's, it's really quite interesting, but it's also amazing. You know, of course, as musicians, we don't actually know a lot about web design. So that's a great idea. 
yeah, we hope that'll be useful to people. So yeah, I think it's a great article. Again, I'll link to that in the show notes. And um, it comes out, is it every quarter or, or twice a year? Yeah, it's quarterly. Quarterly, yeah. So there's a every uh, every publication of the Clarinet magazine, I believe, has that article in it. Yeah, it's a regular column. It's in just about every issue. If you're not receiving the Clarinet magazine, by the way, um, make sure to register as a member of the International Clarinet Association, and you'll receive that four times a year. It's it's really, I, I feel like that in itself is worth it, along with the connections you can make and meeting people, and of course, heading out to the Clarinet Fest, which I had a lot of fun at this past summer, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, so... Yeah. So, of course, you're also a doubler, um, but yes. really, I almost feel like it's not a good word because you also play um, the, the double read. So almost like a tripling or quadrupling <laughs> type person. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine. What, yeah, what's well, it like? I'm, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up uh, because I really enjoyed your, your series that you did with Ed Joffe. Oh, yeah. We just kept going. There's three episodes there. I think 17, 18, 19. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. And, uh, and I, I don't. Uh, I don't dare try and come across here like I'm disagreeing with anything that he said because he's he's brilliant. He plays circles around me and around most of us mere mortals, I think, um, <laughs> and has has just a wealth of information. Uh, I've not met him, but I have the greatest uh, greatest respect for him. Uh, but uh, let me let me throw this out there though. Um, that in my mind, there's there's sort of 20th century woodwind doubling and there's 21st century woodwind doubling. And 20th century woodwind doubling is that that sort of quintessential flute, clarinet, saxophone doubler. Mm-hmm. Um, but my feeling is that in the 21st century, um, that that's going by the wayside. It, it, it has to be uh, flute, clarinet, saxophone all at a high level, plus double reeds, plus more. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, so I, I mentioned, I have my, my woodwind doubling list on my site. And if you look at some of the older shows, the shows kind of from the golden era of Broadway, kind of mid 20th century, uh, the woodwind doublers in those shows often are playing flute, clarinet, and saxophone. And when you look at the parts, you can see that really all of the flute solos all show up in one book and all the clarinet solos all show up in one book. And um, so they, they kind of have specialists uh, who, are, who are the clarinet soloist, but they can play a little saxophone, a little flute. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting to be less and less that way. Uh, the woodwind sections in shows are getting smaller and smaller, but there are more and more instruments. Uh, so it's very common now to see a Broadway show where there is uh, – uh, only one woodwind player, um, but they're playing piccolo and flute and alto flute and oboe and English horn and clarinets in a few different sizes and saxophones and um, and sometimes uh, world instruments, bamboo flutes or penny whistles or recorders or uh, all kinds of things. And it's getting to be more and more that way, um, where not only do you have to play more instruments, but you have to be the soloist on each one of those instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that we're, we're seeing it's, I don't know, it's kind of an arms race, you know, uh, one, one person adds an, an instrument to their, to their arsenal and then everybody else has to do it too. It's almost like being a percussionist. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, I finally realized one day, uh, when somebody called me for a show and, uh, there was an instrument on the show that I'd never played before. And I said, yeah, no problem. Um, and I, <laughs> Uh, and I realized, you know, my attitude has changed here from being, um, okay, these are the instruments that I play to this kind of attitude of, of if it's a woodwind, then I'm, I'm your guy. 
so so the 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 woodwind doubler these days is kind of the the test pilot i think where you throw anything at them and they say yeah i think i can fly that hmm. so i mean how do you even go I, I imagine the upkeep costs and purchasing instruments is is one thing but well i want to get back to that too actually but how do you even go about starting a practice day then? I mean, with six or eight instruments, it, it must be very difficult. Well, it is. And there's not a good solution to that. Um, you know, if you look at a top clarinetist, you know, who's who's winning top orchestral auditions and say, OK, how many hours a day is that person practicing to play at that level? Um, you know, I, I can't practice more than that. You know, I, I can't practice around the clock. There are only 24 hours in the day. So when you're doubling, you're always dividing your time. Uh, and you, you need to practice as efficiently as you can. But you know, those top clarinetists are doing that too. Yeah. Um, so part of it for me when I decided, okay, doubling is going to be my path here, was that I had to decide to be okay with that. Uh, you know, I was a saxophone major uh, as an undergraduate student. And then uh, and for my graduate degrees, I did doubling, did five instrument degrees. Um, degrees in five instruments, I mean, um, and uh, thought, okay, when I do this, that means my progress on the saxophone is going to have to slow down a little bit. And I had to kind of come to terms with that. Uh, so when it comes to a, a day of practicing, uh, you know, really most days, honestly, it's triage. You know, I'm looking at, you know, which patient is currently hemorrhaging the worst and can I save them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes you can't save them, but, um, you know, it's looking at what gig is coming up and, uh, Oh, in a week I need to sound like an orchestral clarinetist cause I'm playing with the symphony. Then the clarinet gets put a little more heavily into the rotation. Um, ideally, you know, if I am, if I'm not panic practicing for the next gig, then what I like to do is rotate, uh, instruments. So, um, I feel like it's not really useful to try to cram all of my instruments into every day. Um, but it's also not especially useful if I practice, you know, clarinet all day today and saxophone all day tomorrow. Uh, so what I try to do is get a rotation going where maybe on Monday I practice uh, flute and oboe and clarinet. And then Tuesday, maybe it's oboe and clarinet and bassoon. And then maybe the next day it's clarinet and bassoon and saxophone. And if I can get a rotation like that going, then each instrument gets practiced um, a few days in a row uh, and then collects dust for a few days. Um, but hopefully I can devote enough time to it within a single day to, to make some progress and get some momentum going. What about the upkeep, upkeep of reeds and maintenance? It must be an enormous cost and, and time commitment in its own way. <laughs> Yeah, 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 it is. Um, I have out of necessity learned to do a lot of smaller repairs myself because uh, it's just too expensive. You know, if, if every time a little cork bumper or something fell off one of my instruments, uh, I had to go pay somebody to do it. I'd go broke. Um, so, you know, I learned to do some of the smaller repairs uh, myself. Um, when it comes to reeds, yeah, that's that's huge. Uh, and I make my own oboe reeds. I make my own bassoon reeds. A lot of doublers, uh, don't do that. And frankly, a lot of doublers probably shouldn't, uh, do that. It, you know, it's, it's such a a time commitment and such a financial investment to, to, to buy the equipment that you need. Um, for me, um, in my university job, I teach oboe and I teach bassoon. And so I feel like it's important for me to be able to, uh, teach those skills and to be able to teach those skills, I need to be able to do those skills. Um, 
so I make my own oboe and bassoon reads. That's a calculated decision, and it is a lot of time uh, and a lot of work. Um, but I'm I'm able to make it work uh, for me. Well, it was funny because I remember when I talked to Ed again at Jaffe. For those who don't remember his episode, episode seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, we had quite a lengthy lengthy talk about doubling and all this stuff. But he had said, I think he was going to a rehearsal and then he told me he had like a three hour read working on session in the afternoon. And it sounded like that was an average day. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I was kind of like, wow, that's some serious commitment. I asked him this question, but I also wanted to ask it to you. Um, have have you tried plastic reads for your doubling needs? Uh, yes. I'm, I'm not currently using any regularly. Um, I know you've you've done done some giveaways in an interview, I think, with uh, Ligere. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very impressed with their uh, single reads. Um, I have not gotten to try their double reads. I hear the bassoon read is getting some attention, uh, some positive attention. Uh, and they just recently released a uh, an oboe read, although it's it's a European style read. So probably even if it's a great read, probably is not what I want to play on anyway. I'll be waiting for them to come out with an American cut. Uh, read. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I've, I've been impressed with those. I've tried some other synthetic reads that I've been less impressed with. Um, but I think in our lifetimes, I think we're going to see this happen. I think, you know, we may, we may see synthetic reads become good enough that they're a no brainer. Yeah. I mean, it's something that people feel so differently about. And I was interested in your, your opinion, particularly after hearing about your article, with the clarinet materials, I was wondering if it was sort of a similar result or opinion for you, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's acoustically a little bit of a different issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see why, you know, um, for years it seemed like plastic reeds were, um, kind of a, a joke or like you'd use them just for marching band or, or something like that. Um, but with the Legere and some others, um, showing a lot of promise in the last 10 years or so, I don't see why we can't get there, you know, get to plastic reeds that are, that are so good that we, we go, you know, why, why are we still playing on cane? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting though, because I, I, uh, although I, st- I do kind of feel sometimes that my best reads are always the cane, but in a doubling situation where you're switching and is it better to have a dry read or one that is not quite as perfect? I, what, what would you think about that? Yeah, that's that's a tough uh, tough call to make. I've done it both ways. Um, used cane reeds um, in a doubling situation and just you know done, done everything I can to keep them wet and keep them ready to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've used the plastic reeds too. And there are advantages and disadvantages on either side. So of course you teach at Delta State University, um, also multiple woodwinds. And we've been yes. talking about how you plan your day as far as practice and gigs and all that. But how do you plan a lesson like this? Oh, well, I, I, um, I, I really enjoy the fact that, uh, you know, I'll have a clarinetist come in for a lesson and then they leave and a saxophonist comes in and they leave and an oboist comes in. Um, you know, I, I think you just have to consider all the things that you do to pre- prepare to be a good clarinet teacher. You know, the materials that you might gather or, you know, kind of selecting your curriculum, what kinds of books and repertoire that you like to use and you just have to make sure that you do that homework on on each of the instruments. It seems like um, uh, sometimes when people are teaching secondary instruments, like maybe someone who's who's primarily a saxophonist, and they decide, well, I, I play enough clarinet that I can try teaching some lessons on the side on clarinet. 
Um, but they're trying to use all the same materials that we're using on saxophone because they just don't know the clarinet repertoire well enough. And, you know, that I've got this etude book that I like for saxophone. So is there a clarinet version of it? And, you know, your clarinetists will be better off if you get them using the tried and true clarinet stuff. So I mm-hmm. think you have to, you have to, you know, really take it seriously, really do, do your homework. Are any of your students though taking the actual, um, multiple woodwind stream as well? They must be, eh? Oh, no, we we actually do not offer that here. Oh, oh interesting. We, we, yeah, we're a pretty small uh, university. Um, you would find degrees like that um, in the largest um, universities, at least here in the U.S. You find them in the largest universities. So, you know, I um, did degrees at Indiana University, which is a huge music program, and, and a degree at University of Georgia, which is um, not as big as Indiana, but it's a, a flagship uh, state school. Um, and... And also there are very few degrees like that being offered at the undergraduate level, which I think is is probably wise. Uh, I think that's something that's better pursued at the graduate level. Uh, and the school where I'm at, we, we um, you know, in our music department, we're teaching only undergraduate uh, courses at this point. Do you encourage your students to, to dabble in, the, in other instruments out of curiosity or for any other purpose or, or to not? Uh, well, I don't push them into it. Um, I had teachers that were great doublers and did not push me into it. And I think that's the right choice. Um, it, uh, my, my students are music education majors, so they have a fairly clear career path, uh, mm-hmm. ahead of them that they'll go into a public school teaching. If they're going into performance, then it may be worth considering uh, a little bit more seriously the, the option of, of doubling. Uh, I have had students who have expressed interest in playing multiple instruments, uh, and have taught some of them lessons on multiple instruments. And for some of them, that has paid off uh, well. I have uh, um, a student who got a good um, public school teaching job um, and was teaching, I think, flute and oboe for them, even though he had been a saxophone major. Uh, now things have, have shuffled around a little bit. Now he's teaching their saxophone students. Hmm. So there, there is some value in that um, if you want it. Um, I would put that caveat out there that if you're – if you're doubling reluctantly, um, you're not going to have a good time and you're probably not going to be very successful at it. Um, it's something that I think you have to really want to do and not everybody does and that's okay. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I wanted to do it and uh, it worked out well for me and you know, that's the case for, for some people. Is there a point where you feel like a student is too young or it's too early to double? Um, you have to take them on a case by case basis, but in general, I would say that undergraduate music majors kind of need to do two things in terms of their playing. And one is to learn the technical stuff, learn how to operate the machine that is the instrument um, or that is the instrument and body together. Um, And the other thing that they need to do is to learn to be musicians. Uh, So they need to learn sort of, you might call them the soft skills of musicianship, like listening and like telling if something is in tune or not. And if it's out of tune, is it sharp or is it flat? And learning how to play a, a phrase that goes somewhere and learning how to, to structure your performance of a, a repertoire movement so that it, um, so that it uh, tells the story of the form of that movement. Um, and my feeling is that if you are trying to, to do the technical stuff on more than one instrument, then that's about all you can handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for most undergraduate students, I would say they need to focus on one instrument, their strongest instrument, 
um, so that there is some bandwidth left available to learn to be a musician. Um, and then beyond that point, if you're interested in pursuing doubling, um, you know, I started taking some lessons on flute and clarinet during the summers uh, as I was coming towards the end of my undergraduate degree and then dove in a little more seriously at the master's degree level with a, a five instrument uh, degree program. I think for most people that probably makes more sense to do it that way. So almost wait until you're done with your, your undergrad type thing to really get into it for real. Yeah. For, for a student that wanted to do multiple woodwinds seriously at an undergraduate level, First of all, there are very few programs that offer it, um, but I would say that should be somebody who has already had significant uh, training and achievements on multiple instruments already at that point. So what do you say then to high school programs or even junior junior high school programs who maybe have kids playing saxophone in the jazz band, but clarinet in the concert band, and maybe, you know, does that happen down in the States too quite a bit? Uh, yeah, it does. And it um, here in, in Mississippi, where football is such a big thing, marching band is also a very big thing. Um, so if, if they have students who are playing, for example, oboe or bassoon, then they are certainly marching some other instrument. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it does happen. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's fine. I think if everybody's having a good time, then then great. Um, and that's, that's a little maybe lower pressure situation. Absolutely. If they yeah. are, if, if they are a color, college music major, then there are certain standards that they have to meet in order to graduate and, and go out into the world prepared. Yeah. It's sort of apples and oranges, I suppose the pre-college and the college, college level. But let's say for a second, there's someone preparing for a college degree such as yours or university degree such as yours. Um, what, what is some advice you'd give them in general about how to have the best audition possible and have the best chance at getting into university? Um, I would say get uh, get some private lessons if you possibly can as early as you can. Um, if I could go back and, and do that differently, I would uh, beg my parents to put me in saxophone lessons um, right away. Uh, you know, I started playing saxophone at age 10 and started taking lessons uh, in high school, taking private lessons in high school. Um, and compared to some students, that that already put me behind, you know, com compared to some of the, the students that I later was, later were my classmates in college. So as soon as you can, uh, you know, it does cost money and it, uh, you know, is time investment. And, you know, but if it makes sense for you, if you're headed towards a music degree, then get some lessons as soon as you can. Uh, have a frank talk with that teacher about equipment, um, about, uh, you know, what kind of instrument you will need um, in order to be successful in college. Uh, even better, um, get in touch with the teacher at the university that you're hoping to go to. Uh, I think a lot of teachers these days are very practical about it, as I try to be and say, you know, there are a number of acceptable options here, including some that are less expensive. Uh, but there are teachers out there who say, no, you have to play on what I say you should play on. And so you, you just, you need to be, be prepared for that and, uh, and know about that. So there's that, uh, I would say, get some, some instruction early on when it comes to the audition process. Um, my advice is relax. Um, I get so many students coming in for auditions and they're so nervous and so tied up in knots that, uh, they don't play at their best. And frankly, I'm not expecting them to, to play a perfect audition. I'm looking for potential. Um, I'm looking to see what kind of player they are in general, more than I'm looking at how well can they execute this one audition piece. 
Uh, but I get students that are so nervous that they um, they knock on the door for their audition and then they go, oh, was I was I not supposed to knock on the door? Uh, <laughs> no, come come in, come in, you know, and they put their music on the music stand. They say, oh, what, is this the music stand I'm supposed to use? Uh, just just relax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just enjoy the experience and, you know, play your instrument and understand that you will be nervous probably and that probably will affect your playing. But um, college music professors listen to nervous students play all day long. Yeah. We, we are used to that. We know what we're hearing and we are listening for your potential. And that that's going to come through. You know, I'm, I'm not that concerned about whether you, you know, manage to, to hit the high G sharp and measure 42. I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, do you have good tone? Do you have a good overall approach to the instrument? Uh, you know, do you have a, a, you know, a certain degree of fluency on the instrument in general? Are you able to play musically? Um, so I'm, I'm looking for those kinds of things. I'm not that concerned about the little details of a missed note here or there. I think that's super important because some I think it's great advice. A lot of times students, they, they trip over a note and let themselves just fall down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It snowballs. One little thing goes wrong and then they're so nervous that everything goes wrong. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. So before we wrap up here, we've got the lightning round, which is five or six really quick questions all to be answered in less than a minute. But is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience before we go ahead and do that? Uh, well, I, I would just like to say I've been listening to the podcast since the very beginning and have been been enjoying it. I always look forward to the new episodes. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have so many guests on and get the chance to speak to so many people. And uh, if you do have questions out there, remember, you can always submit them at uh, com. And do remember to go to the website also to sign up for the email mailing list for a chance to win giveaways and uh, receive coupons and other such things on the website. So the lightning round. Um, if I was to walk over to your music stand right now, what would I find? Okay, I'm reaching for it. I'm in my university <laughs> office right here. Okay, I've got um, the David Haidt Artistic Studies Book Two from the German School. That's Behrman Clarinet Studies. Those are always worth coming back to. I think mm -hmm. uh, I've got a I've got a piece that is new to me. It's called My Aunt Gives Me a Clarinet Lesson by Mark W. Phillips, and this is a piece for clarinet and percussion and uh, dancer slash narrator. Uh, so that's that looks like a fun one. Someone that I that I know nearby wants to play it on a on a recital. And so I'm, I'm going to be playing the clarinet part uh, if we can find a, a dancer slash narrator. That apparently has been been a little bit of an issue. <laughs> uh, I've got uh, Walt Weitzkopf's book, Intervallic Improvisation. Uh, the Modern Stound, A Step Beyond Linear Improvisation. That's been interesting. Been working on that on saxophone a little bit. Got the Barrett uh, Complete Oboe Method. I've got the, uh, let's see, this is the Oboe One Part to the Messiah. And I've got uh, an edition of the Six Bach Flute Sonatas. My God, this is a big stand you got. <laughs> it, it is. It's not, it, I can't lift it up. It just falls all the way back down. <laughs> a breeze in the office blows it over. Yeah. What is one book that you'd recommend all clarinetists read? It doesn't okay. have to. It doesn't have to be a music book. Okay, this this one's going to be tough to do in in under a minute. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I'll try. Um, so my feeling is that there are a lot of books out there that have the same problem we talked about earlier: a very vague pedagogy or um, mythological, pedagogy that is, yeah, uh, or that is um, outdated. Mm -hmm. And is being passed down in sort of in the name of 
well, my teacher said this. And so that goes in my book. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think you have to really read, um, critically, um, and uh, realize that even if the book is by your very favorite clarinetist, it may not be, um, a great book. Um, so I'm going to throw this one out there. This will be a curveball, I think, but, um, I'm, I'm going to suggest that everybody read, um, the flute book, uh, by Nancy Toff. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, it of course is about flute playing. There's uh, information in there that would be useful to woodwind players of any stripe. Uh, but that for me is an example of a really excellent, uh, pedagogical book, uh, that is very clear, uh, is very logical, is very well thought out, um, that is not afraid to, um, break from sort of the, the conventional wisdom when the conventional wisdom doesn't seem to hold up. Um, so I'd say read that and then use that as a, a sort of jumping off point for further study, maybe into more clarinet related things and ask yourself, you know, does this, um, is this of the kind of quality that, um, that, uh, that it could be. Interesting. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to check that one out myself. What is the best piece of advice you ever received and who gave it to you? Hmm. Well, Two two pop to mind, and they're from the same person. Uh, Ray Smith uh, was my uh, saxophone professor at Brigham Young University for my undergraduate degree. He's also um, a, an incredible doubler, uh, just really, really wonderful clarinetist. Um, but he gave me two pieces of advice. Uh, one was uh, surround yourself with musicians who are better than you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's been great advice. I just did a, a, a recital um and got to play with a, a faculty colleague who's a pianist who is definitely a musician who's better than me. So I'm, I feel very fortunate to get to, to play with her and have her kind of lift the level of my own performance. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, the other piece of advice that he gave me that I, I will kind of paraphrase is to make uh, every performance um, an act of service to your audience. Uh, so make it less about yourself and less about, um, you know, uh, how I look or how I sound or, you know, am I meeting my own standard and make it more about, is this something that is, um, enjoyable to my audience? Is it moving my audience? Is it inspiring, uh, my audience? And, and I find that when I, when I take that attitude, uh, my audience has a better experience and I have a better experience. I play better when I can kind of forget about myself and make it about them. Yeah, it's an interesting point, you know, and I, I don't want to sidetrack too much here, ruining my own lightning round rules. But, <laughs> but you know, sometimes I feel like that's why in this day and age, pop music and jazz music is a little more successful commercially than classical. And because mm-hmm. they, they do kind of focus more on the, the experience and the outcome of the of the actual event in that way and the, the performance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, what is your all time favorite piece of music? I know that's a hard question, but. Yeah. Nope. Pass. Can't do it. Pass. Okay. Um, what about this week? <laughs> <laughs> Is there one today on the way here you enjoyed more than others? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really tough one. Okay. I had a student in earlier today and an oboe student, and I played for her just a little snippet of the slow movement of the, um, Sanson oboe sonata, um, which is one that I always, um, really enjoy and relish, uh, relish playing. On clarinet, maybe uh, I, re- I really like the the Debussy uh, Rhapsody. Mm, yeah, one of my favorites too. Yeah. I've never had the chance to see it performed with orchestra, though. Always with piano. 
Um, mm, I, yeah, I'm not sure I've ever seen it live with orchestra. Yeah, it's not my. Actually, it was performed here once by the by Steve Amslow, who's the principal in our local orchestra, and I, I missed it for some reason. I don't know what I was thinking. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, um, and if I was to give you a time machine to go meet any musician or composer, past or present, who would it be and why? Wow, that is that's another very tough one. Um, may, maybe either um, uh, J.S. Bach. Uh, that's that's probably kind of a gimme. Um, or maybe um, Hindemith. Ah. Those are are composers that, in my mind, kind of have some things in common. That their their music um, to me seems like it is is very um, logical. There's that word again. I guess we're learning <laughs> something about me today, maybe. But um, it uh, it's also music that. It, it's kind of no nonsense. Um, they, they both are composers that kind of like, they'll give you a theme and then without a lot of flourish, without a lot of extended transition, just give you another theme. Uh, and then when it comes back, you recognize it immediately. And, and there's just something that to me personally, I, I don't know if I could tell you why, but something that appeals to me about that. I feel like those are, those are guys I could hang with and, and get along with. It's interesting because both of those, uh, composers are also, in many ways could be considered doublers and Hindemith in particular was oh. quite, quite famous for performing, um, you know, the different pieces he wrote on the instrument that, that he had composed it for. This is so weird to me, that's, but <laughs> that's right. I'd, I'd not thought about that angle on it, but yeah, maybe, maybe that's why they appeal to me. We'll go, go yeah. talk about instruments. I always yeah. try to imagine Hindemith playing that bassoon. <laughs> Every time yeah. I hear the bassoon sonata, <laughs> that's all I can imagine is Hindemith standing there, giving it a go. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, um, thanks for a great conversation. If people are interested in learning more about you, where can they find you online outside of brettpimentel.com? Well, that, that really is the, is the hub for it. Come to, to brettpimentel.com. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I do um, have a Twitter uh, account that's at Woodwind Ninja, uh, just all one word. Um, I don't tweet much myself. Mostly it's just automatic tweets of my new blog posts. Oh, okay. Um, I do that on Facebook too. I have a, a page, Brett Pimentel Woodwinds, and that is uh, my pledge on that is that it's just my new blog posts, nothing else. Okay. Um, I personally use uh, Facebook as well, and I've connected with a number of uh, musicians uh, uh, that way too. Yeah, it's getting so hard nowadays because we've got Facebook, Pinterest, like, oh God, I don't even know, Google+, Plus, which I don't know anyone who uses. There's just so yeah. many different things. But yeah, maybe the website and then there's a contact form on there. People can get in touch if they want. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you tweet at me, I will, you know, I will see those and we'll, we'll respond. Um, but I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not hanging out a lot on Twitter. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. And uh, I look forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. <laughs>